Amen. Thank you, Eli. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Well, good morning. Good to be with you this morning. And I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians to conserve our time together. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For those up through grade 6, you can be dismissed to Children's Church if you'd like. And if parents, if you'd like to have them in an age-appropriate class, please feel free to follow the crowd downstairs. We'd love to have your little one down there. Thank you to Sharon Naylor for leading up that Children's Church ministry. It's a blessing to us and our church family. We are just getting our feet wet in a new study, verse by verse, uh, through First and Second Corinthians. We've titled it, God's Plan for a Healthy Church, a study through the book of First and Second Corinthians. And we took some time to introduce this uh, new study. It's been uh, fun to do that. We took about three weeks to set a foundation for the letter. Uh, both in terms of uh, a historical setting and uh, a little bit of Paul's background. We did not take as much time as we did in Romans to do Paul's background. We did that thoroughly then at that, in that study, right, Thinking in a Wrong World. So you can connect with those studies if you'd like to get a, a further uh, and more in-depth of Paul's background. But we did his immediate travels and uh, the, the time around the planting of the Corinthian, Corinthian church so we could see where Paul was uh, mentally as he came into Corinth and uh, really some of the things that were in place that the Lord set there so that he could be successful in spreading the gospel. Now, last time we finished up with what really is to be the introduction of our study today, which is Paul's evaluation of those who are part of the church in Corinth. In spite of the many issues facing the church, uh, brought on by their own sinfulness, it still addresses them as saints. And that is a positional truth, uh, that all who have called upon the name of the Lord for salvation are saints, and that is really our focus today as we move in to verses 4 through 9. But read with me from your open Bible, 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 3, if you will, and we'll do a little bit of a review, which is our habit, so that we're all on the same page today. Paul, called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, verse 2, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now stop right there. And we saw last time, knowing all that Paul knows and now all knowing all that you know about this church, about its setting, about the people who have come to faith, this little island of faith in this sea of paganism, uh, we know that he says in verse 2, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, he says to them, you are sanctified in Christ Jesus, your saints, along with everybody else who calls on his name. Now, he drives home the same concept, you're holy, and this becomes the foundation for all of his exhortation. Uh, we saw the words, who have been sanctified, you just read that, that is from the Greek verb hagiadzo, and then he, we saw saints by calling, which is simply the same root and adjective hagion, so in other words, Paul just says this, you've been made holy and therefore you're called holy once. It's a positional truth, beloved, based on past, uh, past completed acts. So we saw that they're saints, they're holy, and it'd be easy to question, as we said earlier, that they could, you know, how they could be holy with all this mess in their lives. But we also saw last time as we closed our time together that positional holiness isn't a matter of works, is it? A man can't make himself holy. The Lord has to do that. By Christ's death, he made men holy. That's why Paul says, you are sanctified in Jesus Christ. You are saints along with everybody else who calls on his name. So men can be holy, we saw, 
because he paid the price, that's Jesus, for sin. That's the point. He sanctifies men. Uh, that is, he cleanses them. He makes them holy. He sets them apart to himself by his offering, by his suffering, by his death, and by his resurrection. So a saint, then, is somebody who calls on the name of Christ, a Christian, anyone who's saved, who knows the Lord Jesus Christ, is a saint. Then he says, you are called saints in order to make them aware of the fact that the foundation for his exhortation to their behavior is the fact that they're saints. In other words, you've been made holy, you're called holy, therefore I'm writing this letter to you to tell you to act holy. That's really the purpose of his first nine verses where he talks about being a saint. That's the basis or foundation for all behavior in Christian life, really, from the New Testament. It is our own identity. The fact of who we are is the premise upon, as we said last time, that which the Word of God bases the fact that you ought, of what you ought to act like. So who you are is the basis for what God says you should act like. The indicative, you are, is the basis for the imperative, you ought. Always like that as you work through the New Testament. And that occurs all through. In fact, it tells us we're holy because of what Christ is, therefore we ought to be like him. And you remember, Jesus said to the woman at the well we saw last time right at the end, John 8, neither do I condemn you, as he told her that. That is the same point he's made throughout the New Testament. As a Christian, you're not condemned. And so you're holy, your sin's forgiven, your sin is set aside, therefore you ought to act in consistency with your own nature. Now the perfect illustration for that is this passage right here. In Colossians 3, 1 through 15, I'll read it quickly because we studied it in depth last time, but I want to reinforce this with you. So it's a very important principle in the Christian life, your positional holiness. And it is the, the precept upon which all exhortation is made. Okay, and we're going to see Paul go back and forth here in this passage. And just read it with me. You can see it on the, back, on the screen behind me. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, there's the premise. He's going to say it in a bunch of different ways, but that's one of them. Keep seeking the things above which are, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above. Why? Because you've been raised up with Christ. You see? It's based on the premise. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things which are on earth. Verse 3. Here it is again, the premise. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. There's your orientation. Okay? There's the reason he can give you exhortation. Whatever immoral desire your physical body may have, whatever immoral mental desire may be there in play, they're considered dead. Verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Here's the imperative based on the indicative now. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and greed, which amount to idolatry. Why does he say that? Well, because you're dead and your life is hidden with Christ. Why? Because you've been raised up with Christ. And those are the impetus. And remember, verse 6, for it's because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. In verse 7, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them, back before you were redeemed, back before these things that Paul said at the beginning of chapter uh, 3 in Colossians uh, were true about you. You've been raised up with Christ. You've died in your life as hidden with Christ. All before those things, this is how you used to live. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth, Verse 9, do not lie to one another. Why? Since your life, you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and put on the new self who's being renewed in true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So, don't lie. So, don't, uh, uh, that's consistent with who you are. You've put off the old man. You've put on the new man, okay? And the new man wasn't made for that. Verse 11, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, freeman, 
but Christ is all and in all. Here it is again. Here's the premise in the indicative. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Why can you do that? Because your life is hidden with God. Because you put off the old self. Because you've been raised up with Christ. All those things are your position. And because you're in that position, then these things can be true of you. See? Bearing with one another, verse 13, and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, whatever it is, whatever the problem is, whatever the, in, the, the insult or whatever the offense or whatever it is, you, you forgive, you let it go, you, whatever it is, whatever the complaint is. Why? Because your life has been raised up with Christ. Because your life has been hidden with Christ and God. Because all those things are true, see? And that's your positional truth. And so these other things then can be true as well, okay? Whatever, whoever has a complaint against anyone, and again, two different ways, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. You're positionally forgiven, so you forget. You're positionally set aside in Christ, and so you don't lie. And all that stuff, see? Because that's part of the old man, and you weren't made for that. So you're holy in Christ before God, so then act like Christ, see? That's a very simple uh, concept, but I think people get it confused, and I think it's important to go over it. Paul makes sure, and he's going to talk about it at length here, and you're going to see us repeating it over and over again because Paul understands this is very important. And you can govern your life that way. In other words... As you enter that area where you seem to have trouble, wherever it happens to be, since I'm in Christ, I don't want to do anything that he wouldn't do. And that becomes the governing principle of your life. I don't lie because he won't. I don't steal because he doesn't. I don't commit adultery because that's totally foreign to the life of Christ. All these things in my life are to conform to his life because I'm in him. And then we saw your saints, your holy. So having identified then them, he gives them a greeting, just a common Christian greeting. Look at verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Grace to you, see, because of who you are, what your position is in Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's just a greeting, and I love that greeting. Grace is favor, peace is fruit. Grace is the Greek greeting, peace is the Hebrew greeting. He says you're saints, therefore you have grace and you have God's peace. And so Colossians 3, 1 through 15 just illustrates the point of 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9, which is the foundation of behavior in the Christian life. And so Paul begins this first chapter of Corinthians, verses 1 through 9, by telling them who they are. And that's where we're going to look at today. And he lays down that foundation of here's who you are. And then from verse 1, chapter 1, verse 10, uh, clear through the end of chapter 16 in 1 Corinthians, he says, here's how to act and commensurate with who you are. Okay? Now, for verses 4 to 9, he really expands on what it means to be a saint. You're a saint positionally. Uh, you've been set aside. You've been washed. And so what does that mean? What's it mean to be a saint? What is involved in being a saint? What is it to be a saint in terms of what do I receive for it? What are the benefits of being a saint? You say it a number of different ways. And now if you've come this morning looking to find out the benefits of Christianity, this is a sales pitch, okay? Verses 4 through 9 become that pitch. You can see what that looks like. It's really from the mind of God, a presentation of why you should be a Christian as opposed to not being one. So if that's in your mind to consider, then these things uh, you ought to think about. These are the reasons to be a saint. These are the results of being a saint, if you will. And there are three really dimensions. And we look at this verses 4 through 9, and we try to put some handholds on the passages. 
And there's really an outline here to follow, and you can look at it as we go, which is why we say we teach through the ver- verse by verse through the Word of God, because the Apostle Paul was able to think through the passage, right, and what he wrote, and he, he wrote it with some logic, he wrote it with some points, and that the point of teaching verse by verse is that you pick those things up and you understand what Paul intended, okay? You don't just pick one verse and just never touch it again as you talk about what you want to talk about. Verse by verse, you go through, and this is what we're going to do. And these are really simple things, and it gives us some handholds and we can break Paul's comments down, and as we follow them, it'll indicate that we're making some headway through the passage. And the handholds are, listen, the past, the present, and the future. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. The past, the present, and the future. The benefits of being a saint are really going to cover all the periods of life, the past, the present, and the future. And you can see it now that we'll put some handholds on it, pick it up as we look through. Look at the, ver- the, the verb tenses, and you'll see them right away. I thank my God, verse 4 of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, verse 5, that in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, verse 6, even as the testimony concerning Christ was formed in you, verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 8, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 9, God is faithful, Through him you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Stop right there. Now, as is typical of Paul, the church gets an excerpt from Paul's regular prayer life. And I don't want to skip over that. We we see Paul say it a lot, but I want to draw attention to it. He says what? I thank my God always concerning you. That's a very common Pauline greeting to the churches. But I don't want you to think he just got used to greeting them in a certain way, so that's the way he opened all of his conversations with them, okay? He truly does bring a thankful heart to the Lord in his prayer time. And I want to just give you a quick survey of that, and you'll see, uh, perhaps as you read through the Word, I want you to pick those up now as you, as you t- spend time in the Word each day. See how Paul's prayer life was directed. In Romans 1.8, you remember we looked at this. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. That's how he begins his introduction to the church in Rome. I'm praying for you, and I thank God that your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Ephesians 1, 15 and 16. Paul, in the middle of his uh, talking about what he's praying about, says this, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, so not just love for the Lord, but also a demonstrated love for the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. So he gives thanks for their testimony, and then he continues to pray for them and their specific needs. Then Colossians 1, 3 through 4, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. So once again, Paul says, listen, I'm praying for you, and I recognize that there's love for the saints there, that you have a good testimony, and I want to make sure that you know that I continually lift you up before the Lord, and I thank God for that. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, and 3, and I'm just giving a quick survey. There could be, we could spend the whole morning just talking about Paul and how he prays for the church, but he says this, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and the Father. So there's a number of things he's grateful for for the Thessalonian believers, isn't he? That they, he bears in mind their work of faith, so they're faithfully doing the work, diligently, obviously, as Paul said in Romans 12, uh, doing it fervently, so he thanks the Lord for that, their labor of love, steadfastness of hope. And so even in difficult times and persecutions, which we know the churches in Macedonia were going through, and so he says, you know, listen, you're steadfast even in difficult times, and your hope in Christ is, doesn't wane and go back and forth. 
And so I thank God. And that's an, ex an excellent example for us, beloved. And as you lead ministries and as you interact with people, a thankful heart for church testimony, a thankful heart for those who lead and those who serve and those who show faithfulness, that's, that's super important. That brings the right attitude to bear, okay? As you bring those people before the Lord, uh, you are recognizing that they are really faithfully doing the work of God. They're not perfect, and no one is. Everybody needs grace. Everybody needs interaction in that way, but they're not perfect, but they are faithfully serving the Lord, and they're finding places to show that. And as you see that happening, you're thanking the Lord for that, and that is the right heart attitude then to bring to bear in ministry. And so here in his thankfulness, we get our first handhold then, and that's the past. And here he talks about grace. And this is a very important concept, beloved, as you may well imagine. We sang about it this morning with the Chris Tomlin song, but it is a very important concept for us as believers. So we're going to spend some time here. Look at verse 4. I thank my God always, Paul says. And that says one, but it's four. Sorry, beloved. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. So in the past... There's grace, okay? And Paul goes on and says in verse 5, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. So just to foreshadow a little bit, just using the words that Paul uh, uses, the things that are implied by Paul, in the past there was grace, that's verses 4 through 6 and verse 9. You're going to see in the past grace and that benefit of grace, and then we're going to see in the present there are gifts, and that's verse 7, equipped with all gifts. And then in the future, there are promises, marvelous promises, and that's verses 7 and 8. So those are really the handholds that becomes the outline for the passage and helps us kind of understand what Paul's intent is for the church, of course, here in Corinth and for the churches on down through the centuries. And so for an easy way to remember that, what it means to be a saint, one who has called on the Lord for salvation, is this. Your past is forgiven, your present is taken care of, and your future is full of promises. It kind of sums up what Paul's going to say in verses 4 through 9. And how amazing is that, okay? Your past is forgiven, your present is taken care of, your future is full of promises. That's the most wonderful benefit package there is, isn't it? You know, when you go get your first job, you're looking at, uh, of course, the salary. Can I make it on what, I'm, or what they're going to pay me? And then you look at the benefit. What, what are they going to, you know, and everybody wants health care because that's the thing, right? And so, but this is a marvelous benefit package, isn't it? The past mistakes have been dealt with. It gives you all you need to live in the present and completely guarantees your future. So that becomes Paul's emphasis. Now let's look at grace and what happened in the past for the saints. That begins in verses 4 through 6. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. So the first benefit then of being a saint is grace. And these are aorist verbs, and so as you understand aorist verbs, it was given you in Christ Jesus. The idea is uh, sometime in the past at a very point in time, a moment of time, you were given grace. When did it happen? Well, skip over verse 5 for a second and go to verse 6, if you would, okay? Even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. So that, again, is an aorist verb, something in the past that happened at a moment of time. So, uh, from a past standpoint, at a moment in time, you received grace. And we're going to look at this concept of Christ uh, confirmed in you at length next week, because it, it by itself is very important because that helps us understand where we are and who we are and how that occurs. Uh, but I just want to take a moment and just uh, touch on it today so we have the right foundation as we move into grace. But uh, for, the, for the past standpoint, at a moment in time you received grace, it was uh, at a moment the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. That's what Paul says. So 
He says the first benefit of being a saint, he says to the Corinthian church, uh, just think of what you, you've had. At a moment in time in the past, it became yours, and he refers, of course, to, to their salvation. At the time when they received God's saving grace, that's the first and most obvious benefit of being a saint. It's what happened to you when you became a saint. You were saved. You received salvation. Now remember, 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 3, Paul called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. And so Paul refers basically to the same thing, doesn't he? And the term in Christ Jesus is a familiar term to Paul. All blessing, all grace come when you are and I are united in Christ. And again, this is unique with Christianity. This isn't believing the teaching of Christ. Many do that. Uh, it isn't believing about Christ. It's being in Christ, Paul says. And that is an appropriation of committing him, myself or yourself to him in total unity by faith. And when we study Romans 6, we saw Paul explain this so wonderfully. I'll put it on the screen behind me for time. Or do you not know, as Paul talks about baptism, he's referring to the spiritual condition of men, but he's calling on a remembrance of a physical baptism to understand the concept. He says, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? A very important concept. If you've come to faith, you've been baptized into Christ's death spiritually. Therefore, verse 4, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So the old man died and was buried in Christ's death, and the new man rose and walked in newness of life. Verse 5, For we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So we got to share in his death when we come to Christ by faith. Somehow, in God's plan, he understands and makes us understand that we share in his death. Like we shared in Adam's sin, although you weren't there with Adam committing the sin in the garden, you share in Adam's sins called headship, passed down in the human stream from Adam on. You share in that guilt, and you prove that, right, every day, and so do I, by participating in sinful things and rebellious things. So we share in that in Adam's uh, sin and in the death that comes through Adam. And so in Christ, we get to share in his death by, when we come to him by faith, and we are raised when we come to him by faith in the likeness of Christ's life. And so we get to share in that resurrection as well. Knowing this, verse 6, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. So the old self was crucified with him. Did it rise again, beloved, the old self? No. Okay, so are you battling two natures inside of you constantly? Not according to Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. The old self died and the new self rose. And so the new self is what's alive. So what's the big problem? Remember from Romans. Right? We're still clothed in this. This is the problem, right? This doesn't get to heaven. I can't get to heaven with this flesh. That's where the problem is, right? That's where the, that's where the, the beach head is. And Paul talks about that at length in Romans 7. So, the old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Verse 7, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we also shall live with him. So, once again, you're in Christ, then the grace of God is yours. And Paul says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God. Now, what is this grace? Okay, and I want to look at it because it's so basic to Christianity. And Paul does that in verses 4 through 6 and verse 9. And, I mean, when we talk about grace... And we understand that word, you know, we sing about grace all the time. It's a very important thing for us to understand. Now, the word is charis. That's a noun. Very familiar word. It was a greeting people used back in uh, verse 3. 
In biblical times, people came up to each other and said, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A very familiar Christian greeting. It's a lot better than, hey, how's it going? Or what's up? I wish we still used this greeting. Uh, we ought to use it, but here we find the word grace. It means favor, but it doesn't mean favor like we think of. We, we use the word favor for party favors, you know, and that's what uh, all the little guys want to know. What are the party favors when they come to your house for a birthday party? What are the favors? Yeah, or, or I'll do this person a favor. It really kind of dilutes the whole idea, okay? But re- what really the word literally means undeserved, unrecompensed kindness. That's what the word really means. It's not some little ingratiated act, okay? It's undeserved, unrecompensed kindness. Super magnanimous, for it's undeserved, okay? It can't be paid back. Grace always in Scripture has to be a free gift, unearned. Now, just for a second, let's look at this a little bit more closely. And we did this in Romans chapter 5. We talked about standing in grace. Do you remember this? This is one of my favorite passages in all of the book of Romans. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in the hope and the glory of God. Now, there's always those who will say that, you know, you receive salvation as long as you're doing what you should do, you're going to stay in. But as soon as you start having some problems, you're out, okay? And we battle with this. Some of our loved ones are, uh, espouse that and that you can lose your salvation and all of that. But, you know, there are many passages that talk about it. So many, in fact, it's redundant. But this one particularly is important because you have to understand what Paul is saying here, okay? When you come in, you stand in grace. And that's the continual, gracious, undeserved, unmerited forgiveness of God on your behalf for your sins. You stand in it. It continues. It's an atmosphere of grace. A grace is that which forgives, okay? Jude 24, wonderful thought. Now to him who is able to keep you from what? What's it say? Falling. And to make you stand in the presence of his glory, what? Blameless. So it goes along with standing in grace, doesn't it? You're standing in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy. And because of that, he's able to keep you from falling. You stand in grace. We're so secure. I mean, think about it. And this is what I told you many, many, a number of years ago when we went through this passage. What would you have to do to be thrown out of grace? That's the, that's the ridiculous part of this, I can lose my salvation. If you stand in grace, if he's able to keep you from falling and make you stand in the presence of the glory with blameless with great joy, what would you have to do to be tossed out of grace? Well, if you sin so many sins, no. Where sin abound, grace what? There's much more abound. You see, there's no way out. You stand in grace. And grace can only function where there's failure. True? Grace only functions where there's failure because he's not giving it to you because you deserved it. He's giving it to you because you need it. You understand? Because if it was a place of law, a place of rule keeping, you can only stay so long, you know, and you're going to be tossed out, then I would be tossed out and so would you. If your sins expelled you, then it isn't grace, is it? And so to apply that thought, when you sin, it functions. And we have access to God. So Romans 5.20, the full text, the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's a great reality for you, see? And the point we made as we studied Romans 5 is similar to what I want to make now so that we can understand grace. It's going to be a very important message. And remember, this is the message to the Corinthian church. They need to understand this because he's going to get on them pretty hard in the verses to come. But they stand in grace. They have grace. Now, a couple things to help us understand grace in the time we have remaining, okay? I thought perhaps if I went from another angle, you might be able to you know, kind of assimilate this to your life. It'll be a blessing to you this morning. A couple of things that don't coexist with a biblical definition of grace. That's what I want to do now, okay? These things can't be together with a biblical definition of grace. First one, guilt, okay? Guilt. Grace and guilt can't go together, not if it's biblical grace. And I'll show you why, okay? True grace must provide for the mitigation of guilt, 
God doesn't say, I'm gracious and I give you salvation and one false move and I'll take it away. No, that's not very gracious. That's just laying the law on us. Grace doesn't coexist with human guilt. Grace must provide for the elimination of guilt. It has to. Grace is not grace if God says, I'll be gracious unto you if you don't sin. That's not grace. And it's certainly not what we saw in Romans 5 in this grace in which you stand. Okay? God's grace is undeserved, unmerited forgiveness. And as we saw, grace has to allow for sin, and grace can only operate when sin is there. And so what happened? God, knowing that the penalty for sin had to be paid, he sent Christ to the cross. So in Romans 3.23, we see, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. All have sinned, everybody at the same starting point, no matter what your background happened to be, whether you were really a moral person, you were an immoral person, whether you, you, know, you kept the law, whatever it was, you were a Gentile, you didn't know the law, everybody starts at the same point. All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation or a satisfaction in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. It didn't mean he ignored them, he just didn't bring the judgment down on them at that point. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, Christ died to take care of sins, so that God might still be gracious. God had to deal with justice. God is a God of perfect justice, and so... He can't just say, well, forget the sins. Who cares what happened? It doesn't really matter. No, because of justice, the sin has to be taken care of. So, once the sin is taken care of in Christ, God can be gracious to sinners because the price has been paid, you see? So, we don't bear the guilt of it, do we? We don't bear the penalty of sin because he's taken care of his justice in Christ. So, now we can stand in grace, you see? So, the cross pays the penalty for sin. It frees God, listen, from the obligation of his justice. And he says, I'll be gracious to you and then he acts in grace and says you stand in grace. And he's able to keep you from falling and present you blameless before uh, the presence of his glory with great joy. See, you can explain this to people, see? This is how you explain salvation to people. And you go about this step by step. Help them understand. God's a God of justice. He can't just say, hey, I forget your sin. Okay? You may be a good person, humanly speaking. And maybe you do good human works. And God probably likes good human works better than he likes wicked human works. But they're still all at the same starting line. Romans 3.23. And so God in his justice has to deal with the sin. So he did it on Christ. And now he can offer grace to those who come to him by faith. Once you're forgiven through repentance towards God and faith towards Christ, you have received saving grace. Now, how much guilt do you have? None. Because grace, by definition, overrules guilt. Because it was laid on Christ. And all your sin are taken away. And you know, beloved, I interact with Christians all the time who are absolutely distraught with guilt. They have a very difficult time dealing with life. And really, it comes right down to this. They can't accept forgiveness. They continue to hold themselves guilty for things. They're overwhelmed by their past and present sins, and they won't recognize the freedom they have at being forgiven of God. See, That's a super serious problem, and it's pretty widespread. And what it is is a misunderstanding of biblical grace. And sometimes it's people who understand it theologically and could explain what I just explained to you even better, but they reveal that they don't understand its practical application. See, A great illustration, Colossians again, as Paul explains this again, as the Bible explains the Bible, he says in Colossians 2.12, he says, having been buried with him in baptism, so once again we understand uh, what he was talking about in Romans 6, 
in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. You were raised up by, in faith in Christ. You get his life. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, so back when you didn't deserve it, back when you, you weren't earning your way in, you weren't good enough, it wasn't going to happen. God didn't look at you and say, okay, this person's going to be pretty good in the past, or they've done pretty well, so I'll give it to them. Back when you were not worthy, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out, verse 14, the certificate of death consisting of degrees against, decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Let me read it again, beloved. Okay, if you fall into that category I just talked about, let me read this again. Having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of death consisting of degrees, decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to a cross. How much guilt do you bear for, for the decrees that were against you? Zero. How much guilt and penalty do you bear for the sins you committed beforehand, before faith in Christ? Zero. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Everyone, every authority, every ruler that had something against you, everyone that wanted to bring the accusation against you, or whoever that might have been, and whatever record there may have been, it was all canceled out and nailed to the cross, you see? Grace means there's not going to be any guilt. I forgive you. I'll be gracious to you. I know you don't deserve it, see? But I satisfied my justice on Christ on the cross. I know you can't earn it. I know you can't pay it back. That's okay. Grace is grace, and grace means you can't pay it back, okay? And according to Colossians 2, 12 through 15, how much then of a sinner's sins are forgiven? Beloved, all of them, see? All of them. And it's no wonder Paul thanks God for grace, right? Are you thankful for that kind of grace? When you sang today with Chris Tomlin, your grace is enough, is it? Because that's what it looks like. It's way bigger than we capture in a song, isn't it? It's kind of hard to rhyme with all that stuff that is true about grace. But we understand it's true. Are you thankful for the grace that's forgiven you all your sins and holds you absolutely guiltless before God for the rest of all your eternity? Are you? You know, if you're not a Christian, isn't that somewhat inviting for God to say to you, I'm going to cleanse all of your sin before my eyes. I'll forgive all of it. I'll set aside all your guilt. I'll hold you blameless and holy forever when you repent and put your faith in Christ. That's a pretty generous offer, isn't it? Bad news, good news. And I know we're not getting far in the text, beloved, but Hopefully we're getting, moving along in the intent of the text, which is the application. So that's the first way we can describe grace. Grace can't coexist with human guilt, so mark that, okay? It doesn't coexist with human guilt. So the, to the extent that you're bearing human guilt for the sins of your past or the sins of your present, understand that God in his justice has taken out his wrath and the penalty for that sin and all the guilt on Christ. And he's canceled the whole thing now because of Christ, okay, against you forever. Number two, biblical grace can't coexist with human obligation, Grace isn't something you can ever pay back, okay? You know, it's, um, Romans 4 really sums up that all up in Abraham, whatever is earned is not grace. Of course, one of the wonderful things about salvation is God just gives it to you and you don't have to pay him back. Notice, and we've said this many times, okay, you'll want to show him your love, won't you? We understand that. 
Uh, that's, if you've had children, you understand that. You understand the, the disciplining process and all that. You want them to respond to you and love. You want them to say yes and do what you want them to do because they, want, they love you. But, you know, it's one thing to pay him back. It's one thing to love him. It's one thing to serve him out of a heart of gratitude. But, beloved, it's something else to think that you've got to pay him back because you owe him something, okay? Because that's not, that doesn't uh, coexist with biblical grace. God gave you salvation as grace. In a deep sense, we owe him affection, just naturally, and I think that comes to the genuine Christian, to those who are really born again, affection towards God is a natural process. Okay? We, as we move in maturity uh, in our walk with Him, affection towards God is a natural thing. But we cannot pay God back for the gift. I mean, it'd be, I think it'd be similar to throwing pennies at Bill Gates or, or Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg, okay? Tossing them pennies. And even that comparison is woefully short of our attempt to pay God back, okay? So. Number three, as we seek to understand biblical grace, grace can't coexist with any recognition of human merit, okay? In other words, God didn't owe it to you. Grace does not come to the best people. You can't say, well, it's obvious who the good people are, you know, the ones who got grace. Look at us, we're saved. Listen, you're no better than anybody else, and neither am I, and that's wonderful consolation, isn't it? God didn't look down the line of your life, and keep this in mind, and say... Well, they're going to be pretty, act pretty well. I'm going to go ahead and grant salvation to them, okay? He's not looking forward and seeing how you're going to act and say, okay, well, I'll pick this one. It wasn't your goodness that got you here. It wasn't my goodness that got me here. Aren't you glad of that? And I hope you're pretty sure on this point too, beloved, okay? Biblical grace can't coexist with any human merit because if you're not sure of this point, there was a big group of people that you fall right in with, okay? And they qualified on this point. You know who that is, and that's Israel, Right? For centuries, they thought that. They thought that God chose them because they were better than everybody else. Uh, Romans 3, turn there, if you would. We, still have, we have a few minutes. Turn to Romans 3. I've, I've left you right here at 1 Corinthians. So uh, I want you to turn. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. Just read this with me. This is so great. This helps us understand this principle so well. <clears throat> Romans 3, verse 9. Pick it up at verse 9. What then... Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jew and Greek are all under sin, as it's written, verse 10. There's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There's none who does good. There is not even one. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. Verse 16, destruction and mercy are in their path. Verse 17, in the path of peace they have not known. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And now we know, verse 19, that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God. Verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So just to kind of sum that up, he says, listen, this is what all the goodness looks like. This is what the activity of men look like. This is what the Jew looks like. This is what the Gentile looks like, the moral man, all of them. This is what they really look like in and of themselves, okay? So there's no human merit there. So just think of it as Paul desired the Corinthian church to think of it. When you were saved, grace included the fact that no sin or guilt would ever be held against you for the rest of all your eternity. Understand that. You've got no guilt. Guilt and biblical grace can't coexist together. Okay? When you were saved, you were given the freedom to know that you'd never have to pay that back. And you couldn't pay it back no matter what you did. So there's, so there's no I have to's 
in your life, okay? Now, we understand the expression of love to the Lord, okay? But there's no I have to's. It's his gift. And thirdly, know this, he saved you even when you did not deserve it. That's grace, see? And that's the sum of it. And I don't know about you, but that helps me define it, even coming from the backwards way that way. And I tell you, I can say with Paul, I thank God for that kind of grace. Now, I know that you, as you think about grace, hopefully that's what you're thinking about in your life, the blessings of your life, certainly the blessing of salvation. We thank the Lord, as I've said many times, for many things. We thank him and give him the highest praise for the grace that brought salvation to us. But, you know, as, as you've been doing, I'm sure, as I have been doing, you're watching TV and masses of humanity running from the fighting in Syria and Iraq and watching ISIS cruelty, and I say to myself, God, why me? I look at my own life, and I say, you know, why'd you do this for me? Why am I where I am? Have you ever said that? Why such grace on my life? A grace that's beyond the saving grace we just talked about. Why not just the saving grace, but why all this other grace? Why the grace of a precious wife and wonderful sons and, and grace of Christian fellowship and a blessed church and, and grace beyond grace and grace beyond grace? And I just, you know, and hopefully you do this as well. What? Why all this grace? Did I deserve it? It takes me about a millisecond to say, not a chance did I deserve that. See? Can I pay him back for it? No. And beyond that, he never holds a sin against me. It's just an amazing place that you're in, and it's not really explainable because you didn't earn it, and it canceled out all your guilt, and you can't pay him back. You just have it, see? That's the first benefit of being a saint. Now, as we close, I want to draw a couple things to your forefront. It's very important. Let me remind you why God gives us the saving grace. Right at the end of your notes, and I think these are important things to jot down, and you can put them in, in your margin of your Bible as well. I think it's important to remember uh, when you think about why did I get this? Why do I have it? Here's some answers the scripture gives, okay? First, he gives it for his own good pleasure. For his own good pleasure. And Romans 9, 14 through 16 really clarify that for us among many other passages. For what shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? Paul says, no way, may it never be. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 16, so that it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. He does it because he wants to, for his good pleasure. He does it because, according to Romans 9, 14 through 16, he has mercy in accordance with his eternal purposes, in accordance with his own will, for his own glory, obviously. He does it for his own good pleasure. Secondly, God saved us by his grace in order to produce good works. Okay, he does it for his own good pleasure. That's why he does it. He does it to produce good works. You know why? Because God knew that good works could touch the lives of the people in this room. Saving grace produces good works that benefit people. Paul tells that to, to Titus in Titus 2, 13 and 14. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession. Here it is. Zealous for what, beloved? Yeah, sure. Zealous for good deeds, desiring good deeds. So he did it because he just did it for his own good pleasure. He did it to produce good deeds. And he wanted us to be zealous for good works. Why is that? Well, on in Titus, in Titus 3, 8, he says this. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things, why, are good and profitable for men. I gave you grace according to my own good pleasure because I wanted to. I gave you grace to produce good works in you, and I gave you grace to do those good works. 
because God saved us to do good works because good works are beneficial to men. Thirdly, saving grace is to bring blessing to Christians. I can't help but think of Ephesians 2, 4. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Watch, he reminds us again of why we're studying 1 Corinthians. By grace you have been saved. See, So he talks about the same thing. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And again, our second point, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we should walk in them. So, he did it for his own good pleasure. He did it to do good works to men, and he did it to just do blessings to Christians. So God saved us not only to do good works for the world's sake, but he saved us to pour blessings on us for our sake. That's the nature of God, see? To pour out his riches on us forever, who are in Christ. And fourthly, and lastly for today, and most importantly, I think, and this brings up our first point, God gives us grace to glorify himself. To glorify himself. God saved us to be the praise of his glory. And that's in so many passages just right here in, in Ephesians. Just turn there quickly. You're in Romans. But turn to Ephesians 1, 5 through 6. And just read this with me. We're going to close on this thought. I want you to walk out thinking this. Okay? As we talk about this benefit of grace that, that is part of this benefit package that comes to Christians. So God did it for his own good pleasure. He does it to do good works to people, to bless people through your salvation. He does it to bless Christians. And fourthly, to bring glory to himself. Look at Ephesians 1, 5, if you would. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. So he foreordained that for us, for his own good pleasure, of his own will, according to his own eternal purposes. According to the kind intention of his will, verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. So why did he do it? He did it to bring praise to the glory of his grace, to make his grace stand out and receive the glory it's due. Then verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth in him, verse 11. Also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, verse 12, to the end, that we who were first to hope in Christ would be, here it is, to the praise of his glory. He gives grace to, for the praise of his glory. Look at verse 13. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, so this brings it right home to you, beloved, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, verse 14, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. Here it is, to the praise of his glory. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. That really sums it up, doesn't it? The Lord gave us saving grace, number one, for his own good pleasure. Number two, to do good works for the sake of unsaved men. Number three, 
to pour out blessings on the sake of the believers. Number four, to give glory to his name because when we do what's right, God's honored. See? And so he was gracious for his own sake, for the world's sake, for our sake, for the sake of his glory. That's a pretty amazing benefit, being a saint. See, that's a great gift. How did it become ours? How does it become ours? I want it to become mine. Well, we're going to start there next week. Benefits of being a saint. How do they become ours? In verse 6, we'll pick up there and we'll spend some time there. It's an important place uh, to reset, if you will, our understanding of how this is assimilated to your life. Okay, so we'll look there. Will you bow with me in prayer? Lord, we thank you for this marvelous time together with, uh, with the beloved, with uh, those who love you and love your word, those who fellowship, part of the saints uh, that are represented worldwide right here at Berean. Thank you for the ministry that they have. Thank you for the giving of themselves away in so many places under the radar that happens. It just makes the church work. Thank you for the faithful giving uh, that allows us to take care of our obligations that we have and our missionaries and all the, need, the, the needs that we have. Thank you for the blessing of all those who do that faithfully. Thank you for the blessing of your word and how clear it is for us. And particularly this passage as Paul uh, rejoices and thanks you in the pages of scripture here in 1 Corinthians for the grace that was given. And Lord, we thank you for that too. Our minds are refreshed again at the position in which we stand. Lord, may many who hear now or hear later be released from perhaps bondage that they have to guilt or to I have to's or, well, we know who the good people are, all those things that don't coexist with biblical grace. Help us just rejoice that you did it because it was for your good pleasure according to your eternal purpose, according to your own will for your own glory. And you did it to produce good works in us for the benefit of the world, and you did it to produce blessings for believers, and you did it to bring glory to yourself. And Lord, we are refreshed again to recognize where we stand and the blessing of being a believer. For those who sit here today, or perhaps listen later, who aren't redeemed, have not come to faith in Christ Jesus, still don't understand all these things because they're not being part of your life. Lord, I pray today that you'll stir them, draw them to yourself, Today be the day of salvation. Accept a time that they may submit themselves humbly to you. Repentance and faith. And Lord, we give you praise today for the time in your word with, with the beloved. We, give, we honor you. In the name of Jesus, your son, and all God's people said, amen.